I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a mouse. I felt that there should be something built, some kind of a, an amusement enterprise built where that the parents and the children could uh, have fun together. Ah, hiya, hiya, thank you, thank you, and thank you. Oh, good. Now, where's everybody else? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 101 for the week of January 11th, 2009. I'm recording this week's show early as I'll be visiting Walt Disney World later in the week to cover the marathon and a few other events, so there won't be any news this week, but I do have a segment that I think you're going to enjoy. I'm going to fire up the old Wayback Machine as I continue in my Epcot retrospective series and take an in-depth, pardon the pun, look at the Living Seas Pavilion. Ryan Wilson joins me once again as we dive under the sea and look at the history of the pavilion its changes before and after its opening, and its many wonderful details and hidden treasures. I'll have a new contest this week before playing some of your voicemails at the end of the show, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Walt Disney World has undergone change that is both subtle as well as dramatic, from the addition of entirely new theme parks to the quiet removal of a small snack bar. And therein lies the beauty of, and some of the magic of, a place that's so much more than a series of theme parks or even just a resort destination. And as a result of that change, guests sometimes experience unexpected surprises, as there's always something new to see, do, and of course eat every time you go. But with change comes loss sometimes, and for many, sometimes that loss may be of an attraction, a restaurant, or even an entire pavilion. And yes, I'll miss you, Fife and Drum Snack Bar, and of course, Horizons. But sometimes the change is also gradual, and it's subtle, and it does offer a new, enhanced experience for guests. So when Epcot Center opened back on October 1st, 1982, guests visiting the newest theme park other than a Magic Kingdom were amazed, they were enchanted, and immediately hooked. But obviously, change came as well to Epcot as new attractions were added within just a year, and entirely new pavilions sprung up from barren piles of dirt not long thereafter. The landscape changed, and thus so did the guest experience when the majestic Living Seas opened in 1986. Unlike anything guests had ever seen in a Disney park or anywhere else, it offered experiences that were educational, interactive, and most of all, memorable. Well, today, the seas has evolved once again with a new theme, but still a similar principle. So this week, I want to go back to the beginnings of this pavilion that showcases man's undying quest for discovery 
as I continue in my Epcot retrospective series. And joining me once again is fellow Disney geek, Epcot fan, and all-around nice guy, Ryan Wilson from the Main Street Gazette. Ryan, welcome back. It's great to be back. Thanks for coming on and do this with me. Um, I've really been looking forward to exploring this pavilion for some time now. Um, I think it wasn't just not only one of the most beautiful and still is one of the most beautiful pavilions in all of Epcot, but I think when it was built, it really signified one of the most ambitious projects undertaken as part of the development of Epcot Center. Definitely. I know when I was a kid growing up, it was my sister's favorite pavilion and it was one of those things I was kind of for her first few years, I shied away from because it was her thing. And I was like, oh, you know, there's something wrong with that if my sister loves it so much. <laughs> but I think the ambition was there even from like if you look at the front sign to the Living Seas, you know, every other sign had, you know, it looked nice. But the Living Seas with the rock and the way the waves crashed over it, it definitely signified a change in what you were seeing in Epcot Center. Absolutely. And because it wasn't an opening day attraction, you know, if you, if you kind of think back and look at it, it made sense when you first saw Epcot that a, a pavilion dedicated to the oceans and our relationship with the sea would be not just a good fit, but really almost a requisite element of the park in order to complement all the other pavilions. Especially when you think about, you know, you had Spaceship Earth, which was our history, and you had Horizons open a year later with you know, where we were going in our future. And right next door to what the Living Seas was and is, was the land. So it was the perfect complement to one another. And you're right, it almost was this, you know, this called for element. Absolutely. And, and Matt, this, this is actually a good point to talk about some of the history of the pavilion, even before it became what it was today, because it was going to really be something very different than what it was and actually located someplace else um, in Future World. Because the first concept for the Living Seas was, was very, very different. Um, it was originally supposed to be presented by Walt Disney Productions. It wasn't going to have a sponsor. And the look and the feel and the story was... I don't even know how to describe it. You, you sort of were put into this cave-like pre-show. Um, it, it, it didn't have the sort of sea-based alpha look and feel. And these walls would close behind you in this grotto. And your host and your narrator was Poseidon. He was the Greek god of the sea who represented power, strength, and, and the uncertainty of the seas. And he would serve as your narrator, not just through the pre-show, but sort of uh, the beginning part of the attraction until you reached the coral reef ride. Right. He was supposed to appear out of a lightning bolt uh, kind of effect. Um, and it was very much a mythological look at the early concepts of what we thought the sea was and what it represented. Um, more in line with what you think of the imagination when it gets dark in that pavilion with Dreamfinder and Figment. Um, but he was going to come out and, and tell you about the parts of the wave and how the ocean worked and lead you on your quest. Yeah, and again, it was a, a much more whimsical feel than what you had. And even early concept designs for the building itself uh, were very, very different in both size and in structure uh, and after this pre-show where he led you through, you would you would go into another uh, vehicle-based attraction, although instead of sea cabs, which we eventually had, they were sort of bubbles. You'd kind of climb into this bubble, and you'd be taken through this cradle of life sequence under the sea. Uh, and the one other big difference about the, the ride, Ryan, was that it was going to be much, much longer than the relatively short sea cab ride. The ride in the original concept was going to take up really about half the, the entire pavilion. 
Right, and you were going to have like giant kelp forests, and you were going to, you know, the food chain, and at one point you were going to be, you know, eaten by a giant fish, so you were part of the food chain, and it was going to be a much more expansive experience than what you ended up with with the short about three-minute sea cab experience. Right, and the other thing, too, was instead of the, the research facility, Seabase Alpha, which we'll talk about when we talk about what we have when the, the Living Sea is actually opened, you had this experience where you were meant to be sort of under the sea. Uh, you were supposed to really be underwater in this, you know, giant 200-foot diameter coral reef tank. You were supposed to be really in the ocean itself uh, in the future. Uh, there was definitely a futuristic theme to it as well. And much like what we eventually had after the ride was over, there were four different sort of undersea modules that you can go to, these educational modules. One was about undersea technology and talking about the diving suits of the future. Another was undersea communications, and they'd be sort of demonstrating how you'd be able to listen to people in ocean bases that were underwater near the Arctic Circle. There was the marine science advances uh, sort of module or, or, or a little area that would talk about advances in food uh, preparation. And then the last one was, was communications between man and sea life. And there would be this, you know, it was supposed to be the year 2030. So there was this translating computer that would let man talk to dolphins. Right. And it's funny because you get a much more futuristic theme with the living seas when it actually opens. But some of these ideas were, you know, very, very distant future at the time. But still some of them came through in the living seas like you had the diving suit, you know, that would eventually appear in the living seas and you could move the knobs and whatnot. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and we'll see that a lot of these elements in the original designs did come over. There was going to be a second level observation deck, much like we have now, where you could watch the divers and the fish, etc. There also would have been a backstage tour that you could have taken as part of the original pavilion. Um, you wouldn't have to sort of book it separately. You could do it right there as part of a backstage tour. But, you know, let's talk about maybe why we don't have this, this Poseidon-led journey under the sea into, into the year 2030. And, and I think really they really wanted a much more serious theme to the pavilion, um, especially when United Technologies signed on. So the look and feel of both the interior, interior and exterior of the attraction changed. This obviously delayed development until 1984. Uh, it, it also changed where it was located to. At one point, it, there was early concept art and, and models of Epcot where this was supposed to be located on the opposite side of Future World next to Horizons, when it actually was still called Century 3 at that point. And it was going to have this uh, this huge, beautiful glass dome uh, that was originally planned on top that we obviously lost when it moved to the opposite side, like you said, making sense to go right next to the land. Uh, and obviously the, the theme and the building itself changed shape. Right, and, it, and it, at the time, it, you can all see it making sense on the opposite side, you had all the harder sciences over there. You had the transportation, you had energy. Uh, so, so the exploration of the sea and all the sciences they were talking about would have made sense over there, but they used the, the space they had available over by the land, uh, and it just made it flow, I think, a little bit easier. Exactly. And, you know, we, we mentioned the shape of the building, and I think that's something important. I think this is why I still think it's one of the most beautiful pavilions, because looking at it, from the outside, you definitely get this feel of a huge shell or a giant wave, and it, and it sort of sets the tone from a distance, or even as you're on the monorail. I love sort of riding the monorail just for the sake of being able to go through Epcot. You see that the crests and the troughs of 
a wave in this massive, massive structure. It's about 185,000 square feet. And even the rock work on this side of Future World makes it look like a shoreline or a coastline. And if you see the difference between Future World West and Future World East, West is much more fluid, much more flowing, unlike the very straight and sort of hard lines of Future World East, like you said, with those different sciences on the opposite side. Right, and the, the, this side of Future World has much more water present, that, so it actually made a nice flowing, almost like a river, into where the seas would go. And just the building itself with the curves and all the accents, even without the movement of the water splashing over the rocks up front, it just looked like it moved, like it flowed just like an ocean. Absolutely. It was actually recognized in 1987 with a Civil Engineering Achievement of Merit Award uh, from the American Society of Civil Engineers. And you can still see the plaque as you exit uh, sort of the gift shop area if you go all the way to the right-hand side before the double uh, the double doors leading you out. You'll see that the plaque is still there. So uh, I think the building is impressive, not just as an engineering feat as it was because it was recognized, but I think just in its beauty and the message that it tries to convey. And like you said, with the water outside, it's very kinetic. It's it's very alive, even with the new Nemo overlay that we have on it now. It, speaking of the Nemo overlay, this the Civil Engineering Award that's up on the wall is the basically the last living reference to the Living Seas because it still is listed as the Living Seas on that plaque. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, the last time I was there... I tried to find, if I could, some of the older references. Every now and then in some of these pavilions, you'll find tributes to the original pavilion or the building or the attraction. A lot of times you'll be able to find, if you remember what Epcot first opened, all the pavilions, including Epcot itself, had its own sort of symbol um, in a circle. The Living Seas obviously was a sort of teal green with two waves in it. Horizons had its own. Communicore had its own. Epcot had sort of the interlocking five circles. I've tried to see if I could find that uh, anywhere in the pavilion, and I only found it in one spot, and that's upstairs in the manatee viewing tank. If you look across the water to where the cast members come out, there's actually a black um, briefcase there, a large black briefcase, and it still says the Living Seas and has that logo on it, but that's the only reference I found to it. Interesting. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's very tough to find those references. You, you can find the in the gravity wheel at Horizons. It has the Horizons, old little Horizons logo. Um and occasionally you can. You can find those little things, but I didn't. I actually didn't know about that one in the Living Seas. Ah, see, that learn something new every day. Thank you. I'm every done. Every day. I'll be here all week. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, let's talk about the, the pavilion itself when it finally does get open. And, and uh, you know, I'm still amazed by the fact that you can go there in 1982, there's nothing, and then just a couple of years later, you've got this massive pavilion with this giant aquarium inside. But it does finally open on January 15th. 1986, and it's presented by a company called United Technologies. And I think for a lot of people, it's not maybe a name that's as familiar to us as, you know, Bell Labs, AT&T, or even today, a company like Philips or Nestle or Kraft. Uh, it's a very, very diversified company, and I didn't really see very much that had to do with the seas. They actually own carrier air conditioners and heating products. They do aerospace systems, industrial products, Otis elevators which will actually come in handy later on, uh, aircraft engines, helicopters, fire and security systems, and power fuel cells. So uh, a unique pavilion for them to host. But um, it, it, again, this attraction, when it opened, nothing like anything um, I think guests had ever seen before, not just in Epcot, but I think anywhere at a, at a Disney theme park. Yeah, it was, you know, it was one of the first times that guests could actually see 
you know, living, breathing animals uh, up close and personal, and they could learn and about the conservation elements and how they lived and you know how they ate, all these different things. And that was a brand new experience to most guests. Yeah, and going back to sort of the comparison to what we were saying before, it was definitely a much more serious theme. Um, and now they added real research facilities, just like in its, like you said before, in its neighbor, the land where you've got, you know, the, the dome and the greenhouses. Here there are actual real working research facilities. So there's definitely a, a real conservation educational aspect to it. It was actually designed with the uh, uh, guidance of an advisory board of experts in oceanography and different fields like that, much as Disney does with all of the pavilions, especially in Future World. Um, they really sort of tap into the best of the best. The Sea Base Alpha storyline is created. Poseidon goes away. There's no reference to him, I don't think, anywhere in the pavilion. And again, you know, it takes them just about two years to build this, although they were sort of gathering their inhabitants. And actually, what they did was, as they were gathering fish to bring over into the aquarium, they were sort of stored in this holding tank in the Florida Keys until 1985, when they were f- finally brought over. Um, but obviously, the, the one of the biggest, pardon the pun, aspects of the pavilion, and really its, its sort of centerpiece is the largest saltwater aquarium tank. And at one point, it was the largest saltwater aquarium tank in the world. I think, forgive me if I'm wrong, the Georgia Aquarium was built a few years ago. I think that might be a little bit bigger. but Yeah, it, t- it just topped it out a few years ago. Yeah. It could, I mean, and this is, I mean, this is no small feat. It's 203 feet in diameter, 27 feet deep, holds 5.6 million gallons of seawater, plus another few million gallons in a backup system. There's also another separate 6,000-gallon tank um, that, that has other fish in it. But, I mean, the fact that you can basically take Spaceship Earth and drop it inside this tank, uh, I think, is, is pretty much an amazing feat and, and justifies that engineering award that they received. Yeah, absolutely, especially when you consider that the tank itself, um, this is getting a bit technical, but it has like a reverse filtration system, which instead of like most tanks, sucks the water out from the bottom, it pushes it up to the top, takes off all the scum and all that, and then puts fresh water back in through the bottom. It was just a huge undertaking. Yeah, it really is incredible if you stop and think uh, exactly what they do to make these things happen uh, and how they were able to sort of bring it to... Remember, this was a swamp at one point, and, and now they've turned into, like I said, at one point, the largest aquarium in the world. But one of the, the my favorite pictures um, from early Epcot is actually the opening day of the Living Seas Pavilion, and that's when Frank Wells, who at the time was president and CEO, sort of, you know, worked left-hand, right-hand with Michael Eisner, unfortunately, was lost way too early in a uh, in a helicopter accident. He joined Scuba Mickey in the tank to sort of cut the ceremonial ribbon. So I think that was really really cool that he donned his diving suit and, and got in there with Mickey. Yeah, that I, I believe it's the like the yellow Mickey suit, you know, the dive gear, and it's just it is. It's one of those fantastic classic images that you know it's up there with in Future World with you know when you have rainbow silver astronaut Mickey. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Although I have seen Diver Mickey, I have seen Scuba Mickey in the tanks. Uh, I actually went to a private party that was held. They actually rented out the entire Living Seas Pavilion, and it was quite amazing that I was able to go to this. And they had gotten Scuba Mickey to come and swim in the tank and wave to people and wave to kids and, and pose for pictures and stuff. So uh, very cool seeing Mickey in his little diving gear. I can, think, I can only imagine how, much, how heavy those suits are on a regular basis. To have it underwater, that would take quite a swimmer. Yeah, no kidding. Mick, Mickey... Uh, Mickey definitely ate his Wheaties that morning in order to, yeah. be, to be doing that. So let, let's talk about the original 
elements of the pavilion because I think people who may not have experienced it might be somewhat surprised at how different it is than what we see today. Um, obviously, first thing you had before the main ride was you had a pre-show and there was this large, very 350-person queue area that you still have today as you're, you kind of walk through this very winding, very wave-like path. But instead of the Nemo overlay, you there were there were pictures and models and what I loved were real artifacts which which show the history of ocean diving and there was an old glass diving barrel uh, used by Alexander the Great in 32 BC uh, Sir Edmund Halley's first diving bell uh, some other diving helmets from the 16th century my favorite of course though was the 11 foot model of the Nautilus which was actually used in the filming of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and a diving helmet that was used in the film and there was also a movie poster in there as well yeah, I remember that. And there was the huge, you know, mural of sea history and the artifacts. You could just tell they had definitely been under the sea. They had the, you know, the encrusting and all of that. It very much had a, you know, almost a museum type feel to it. Like, you know, these were, you know, honored artifacts of the sea and, you know, definitely meant to be taken seriously. Yeah. And, and I like the fact that the queue was not just sort of, uh, you know, stanchions and, and velvet ropes that you kind of had to walk through. There was something to see, there was something to look at and, and something to, to learn um, as you went through. And again, for, you know, just the movie fans, the, the 20,000 League Nautilus sub, I, I think was awesome. But that was sort of like a pre-show to the pre-show of the pre-show, because at one point there was uh, a sort of like a little lobby show that was only about two and a half minutes long, and it was almost like a slide presentation. Kids, if you remember slides, it was pre-PowerPoint <laughs> days, um, showing how technology from United Technologies, obviously, aided research, um, how they're going to be able to use this technology now and in the future in the exploration of the seas. And then there was the pre-show movie, which if you've seen it, you remember it, and it rained, and it rained, <laughs> and it rained. Um, the deluge. The del- <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and they rain. And rain. And rain. The deluge. Called The Seas, uh, it was a seven-minute presentation. It was written, produced, and directed by a gentleman by the name of Paul Gerber. Um, And it was very memorable, partially because of the narration. It shows sort of how the seas were formed, the source that it's a source of energy and minerals. And then one of the things I loved the best was it had this sort of Tron-like vector-based diagram of the pavilion that you were about to go in and see. Right. You had a whole ocean scene in front of you, and all of a sudden these blue laser lines would, you know, kind of go out from where you were standing and build this, you know, component of what you were going to get ready to, you know, go underneath the sea to. Yeah, and it, and it so evoked memories of Tron. Uh, and even today when I, when I go back and I look at videos, I mean, that's that same type of, of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ended by welcoming you, welcoming you not just to the living seas, but welcoming you and introducing you to the concept of Sea Base Alpha, that you were going to go into this real research facility. Um, and as you left, you got to one of the, the my favorite parts of the attraction, which were the hydrolators. Right, and that was actually even hinted at in the, the film, the Seas film. At the very end, you could hear the, you know, quote-unquote, like, radio towers communicating, you know, prepare for the, you know, hydrolators, you know, make sure they're locked and, you know, ready for navigation. And you'd walk out and you could hear the water crashing over the little rocks on the gateways, you know, gantries into these hydrolators. 
Right, and that's what I loved was, I mean, talk about a, a sense of realism that they that they did. In between each of the three hydrolator doors, there was this bubbling, crashing water, as if though you really were stepping out onto the water surface, you were going to board these large, obviously made by Otis, elevators that were going to descend down however many fathoms to the sea base. Um, and the sense that you got when you went inside was almost that you were sort of in a uh, a Star Trek type elevator, but you'd see the rock walls uh, and the bubbles of the water on the side moving up past you and the floor would shake and really give you the sense that you were descending. And if you looked into the overhead portal, uh, you'd be descending past that sort of sunlit water surface. And, uh, you know, you only moved about two inches up and down, but you really, I mean, you felt like you were moving. And I, and I think it tricked really only the youngest of kids and, and a lot of adults as well. But uh, it, it was a great, great effect as opposed to just sort of putting you in a, in a, you know, a box and, and kind of sort of shaking it around and giving you the narration to make you feel as though you were descending. Right, and it would get darker and darker, as you said, like as you were moving away from the light at the surface. And you know, like any good elevator, it had you know the the levels of the sea base alpha that you were descending. You know, you had things like the lab services, the crew quarters, uh, the visitor center, which is where you were going to end up. Obviously, they weren't going to let you wander around the the crew quarters, but they gave you all these details of you know this is what we're going past to get you to sea base alpha. Yeah, you really bought into the storyline that they were hinting at very early on right here. This is where that sort of transformation takes place and really you become immersed in the attraction. You've seen the film, now you're in it. You know, now you really are a part of it. And then as the Hydrolator's doors open on the opposite side, you are brought over to, you know, one of the highlights really, I think, of the pavilion at the time, which was the sea cab ride. Um, there were these little two blue two-seaters you kind of sat side by side in in a sort of omnimover type ride system and it took you past a number of tanks where you saw fish a lot of divers always divers in the water um, sharks unlike what we have now with the the nemo attraction you were actually able to look up Um, there was glass above you and if you go to the second floor observation deck go to the walkway to the big round area you can still look down you can see the tunnel actually where the ride goes through Uh, And this is one of the things I love. And again, too, Ryan, there was the element of the story here. It wasn't just you looking out into an aquarium tank. There was a narration by Commander Fulton, who was sort of the facility administrator. Right. And conveniently, he would be called away just before you got to the end of your sea cab ride. (laughs) But he would explain all the different creatures you were seeing and the different kind of protocols and experiments that were being carried out at the research facility as you made your way through this grand water tunnel. Right, and as you get to your your ultimate final destination, which is the Sea Base Alpha Visitor Center, uh, you really get the sense that you were sort of in this real research facility. You know, there was no, you couldn't sort of look out into the sunlight. I mean, you felt as though you were underwater. Unlike now, if you kind of come out of the ride and look by Turtle Talk with Crush, you can look out and see the glass doors and see that, you know, you really are um, on the surface. And... I loved it. I mean, I to this day, I still love the interior of this, and I, and I loved kind of getting that sense that you were in the future in this in this underwater facility. Right, and they, you know, bring back the hydrolators. They had the hydrolators on the opposite side as well. That was where you exited. You had to get back in the hydrolators, take you back up to the regular level, so that you could exit out and back into future world. Of course, and you had that whole undersea feel. You know, the the grating on the roof and 
you know, the, the different modules, the way they were potted and, and curved. It just it had that feel of almost of the aspects you saw in the posters in Horizons queue, the travel posters. It had that feel and you were walking around in it. And the thing I love the best were, you know, the people that complained that, that they had the bends or they had gone up too fast in the hydrolators. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my dad. My dad is very claustrophobic. And so <laughs> he knew you weren't going anywhere. He just wanted those doors to open. He was like, just let me out of this little t- tube you have stuck me in. Yeah. And, and I mean, you could have there, – there are guests that for one reason or another, you know, if they have a fear of water or they had a fear of closed in spaces – they would actually let you bypass um, going on the hydrolators, you know, not sort of in, in plain view of the guests, but um, you could do it, you know, if you really wanted to. They didn't actually make you do it if you had to. But once you got into Seabase, much like now, it was divided up into different sort of modules. Um, one module, you know, which had, all they were all numbered and they were all sort of labeled was ocean ecosystems, and they were there at the shallow tanks that are still there now, where you can see the stingrays um, in the very sort of uh, low water. There was another one, like 1B, was the undersea exploration. Another was earth systems that I remember, Ryan, had uh, all these interactive kiosks. There was a very, very small theater off to one side that had a a large globe and an atlas next to it. A lot of the touchscreen technology, too. We talked about it earlier when we were talking about places like Communicore, this is where this touchscreen technology and video game technology was used very, very heavily to, to give a sense of interactivity to the, to the exhibits. Yeah, it was one of those elements of, you know, this is the future. This is what we're going to use in the future, the touchscreens and, you know, all the, the, um, the globe you're talking about, which was, I guess, the animated atlas of the world where, you know, you could see all these elements and touch them. And, you know, and who knew 20 years later, we do have touchscreens. We do have, you know, all this great stuff. Um, but it was definitely bringing the future to you at that point. Right. And, and what I love was the balance between the future technology and the video gaming and, and the computer element with something as simple, and it's still there, and I still think it's, it's beautiful, was the marine mammal viewing area where you can see things like the manatee. And if you go up to the second level, you can see them care and feeding of them, and you can talk to cast members. And I'm, and I'm very, very happy that that's still there. And again, much like we have now, you can still go up to that second level. There was there was an ocean resources area. There was the like I said, the mammal research center. Uh, I also remember a desk um, upstairs where there was a cast member, and there was like some individual tanks up there. And again, more of those interactive kiosks as well. Right, and of course, the one thing we're forgetting, with, which you know, almost a focal point when you walk into that main room in front, in the middle of all the modules, was the lockout chamber where you could see it, you know, you could talk to a diver who was getting in and he would get in and they would seal him up and flood the tube and then he would go out into the tanks and continue that communication with guests. So it was that technology, but still it was, you know, he's swimming with, you know, fish that we see outside and in the ocean every day. Right, and it was, I mean, they would bring a cast member out that would field questions and the diver could hear you and would be able to answer sort of a, a very simple turtle talk with crush minus the crush. But again, that level of interactivity is something I enjoyed. And there were other exhibits as well, too. Um, do you remember Jason, the undersea sort of robot that had the two arms? Very reminiscent, and again, in an early Disney movie reference, he reminded me so much of Vincent from The Black Hole, um, that sort of yes. you know floating robot that talked to you about the, the um, automated and computerized uh, undersea exhibits and subs. There was the, the gym suit, the big diving suit with the giant, you know, white head with the portholes that you can step into. 
get a photo in. There were submersibles hanging from the ceiling, some robotic subs. Uh, there was a wave machine and a kelp pool. I mean, there was a lot, a lot, a lot to see um, in, in Seabase. Pardon the pun. A lot to see in Seabase Alpha. <laughs> there was, there was so, in every module you could spend, I mean, honestly, at least an hour just going over all the little pieces they had given, you know, provided to guests to experience what the sea was like and, you know, what, you know, in the ecosystems, you know, we had to talk about camouflage and, you know, the symbiosis and how all these organisms live together and, wor- and really work together. And it was just, yeah, hours upon hours of stuff to, to look and see and touch in the living seas. And I, again, I, I love the fact that it blended the simplicity of being able to just sit down and look through these you know, giant eight-foot acrylic walls and just observe the fish, observe the divers, learn a little bit, but mix that with the futuristic technology. It really sort of gave credence to the very futuristic concept of the pavilion that they were trying to get across. And, you know, the fact, like you said, that you could spend not just an hour, but potentially hours in there was a great example of Epcot's mission, which was that you were learning without knowing it. And, and I think that's sort of the brilliance of this pavilion specifically is that you are learning through experience Uh, you're not just watching something you're not just seeing a movie you are experiencing it and it takes guests to a place lets them see it lets them touch it lets it feel it lets it really experiencing everything and i think because still to this day i think because the ocean much like space is still so mysterious i think it has and i think it still has even greater appeal than something like the land. And don't get me wrong, I I like the living with the land attraction. But this pavilion as a whole, because of the interactivity, because of the mystery of the ocean, I think that's part of the the big appeal for me. Absolutely. I don't know any of my preschoolers who I couldn't take take them into the living seas and put them up on that observation deck, and they just wouldn't sit there, you know, draw-dropped, watching you know these sharks swim by or going over and looking at the manatees and i mean almost being able to touch them through that glass it just gives you so much and i don't think you really saw that level of entertainment and education all rolled into one until you got to animal kingdom you know years later with all the exploration trails right and just as they did from the very beginning they still do today if you go to that second level to the manatee tank you can there's a cast member there and you can talk to him or her. They do give five minute presentations, I guess maybe every fifteen minutes or so, about, you know, conservation and educating people about, you know, the problems with the manatees and some of these these other um, fish and some of these other animals. So it, education is still an important part of pavilion and if, and if you're gonna be taking your preschool class there, I so wanna be one of your students. But <laughs> there is so much to see in the tanks. It's not just like a, a little local aquarium. I mean there's thirty five hundred different inhabitants there's 65 different species of sea life you can you can get sort of very up close and personal with them and and uh you know the way that they have the the pavilion design and laid out um i think is spectacular it's it's one of those very few pavilions and we're jump, i'm gonna jump ahead here a little bit but you know it has a kid cot station now and it's one of the very few kid cot stations i see and like i said being a preschool teacher i kind of watch these things but it, it's almost always empty because there's so many other things to learn and see while you're in there. And even in the observation level now, they still have, you know, the cast members come through and it's not as frequently as it used to be, but they're still there. They're still talking to people. They're still, you know, have so much to share with them. Right. Now, I will tell you, I have a three-year-old and I have a five-year-old, a boy and a girl, respectively. And my son is a Nemo fanatic. 
he loves Nemo. He loves Nemo the musical. He loves the 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 movies. Obviously, he likes the ride. Don't get me wrong. He likes the ride, but he you know the ride is almost like his pre-show to getting in there and running from you know glass wall to glass wall to look at the different fish and trying to point out and he'll say look there's a shark or look there's a a whatever uh, and I think that's really a testament to what this pavilion does and sort of the, the longevity of you know the, what it's really trying to do and what it's trying to accomplish yeah I can remember being even a preteen and you know this is embarrassing myself but with a shark tooth necklace on around my neck and running you know around the observation deck like following the, the one shark I can find I'm like look shark 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 and yeah it's just it, it is it just it I think Nemo is great uh, I think it gets kids interested at least in you know what you know getting into the pavilion but once inside there's just a whole new world to open up in front of them pardon the pun you know the whole thing. yeah yeah <laughs> But and I and I'll 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 leave the whole shark tooth necklace and probably the, the <laughs> spandex that you had on and your hypercolor t shirt, whatever it would be. But so, but, but the, you know, the long the long grunge hair. Did and you have that, a mullet? Yeah, this guy, you had a mullet, didn't you? No, I didn't have the mullet. No, I had the, <laughs> the the shaved haircut underneath with the long hair over the top. Yeah, that was my Did haircut. you have a little ponytail? A little little ponytail? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yikes. There are there are about three pictures of them and I own them all. <laughs> So, all right, let's talk, you know, we've been sort of hinting at the, the change to the pavilion and what we have today. Uh, let's go back about a decade, January of 1998, uh, United Technologies ends the sponsorship of the pavilion. It takes about a year or so, end of 99. There's pretty much no reference to United Technologies left in any of the shows, anywhere around the pavilion. Uh, and this is when things start to sort of change uh, physically as well. There used to be two pre-show theaters. Um, now... They actually closed one of them off. They made a sort of walkway through it. So if you wanted to bypass the pre-show, go right to the hydrolators, you could, um, fortunately or unfortunately, um, because I actually did like the show itself. 2002, sadly, the Sea Cab ride closes. Um, and now you sort of just walk into the pavilion, you go right into Seabase Alpha. And I think so much of the storyline went away with the ride, you know, not only do we lose lines, but you you lose a storyline, and now guests no longer sort of have the idea about the future element of the pavilion. And and don't get me wrong, the ride actually wasn't taken out. I mean, they literally just built these gray walls right in front of it. I actually have some photos sent to me by cast members at the time behind the walls, sort of taking pictures, sitting in, um, you know, in the vehicles that are that were still sitting there. So it's not like there was a problem with them. It's not like, um, you know, I. I, I have to assume they were still popular and there was really no explanation as to why the ride was shut down and just sort of walled off right it seems like you know between the closing of the the sea cabs and the bypassing of the movie you you're losing your backstory you know I, I know they say a lot of times you know you do all your work up front and the payoff is that you know is everything after that and you you miss that you know you had the explanation of you know the the visual aspect of what seabase alpha was in the the seas film and you, you had the sea cabs, which you know explained to you all these research elements and what you were going, you know, to experience. And with all that lost, it's like you're walking into uh, any aquarium out there, you know, the Atlanta Aquarium, the you know, any the Nashville Aquarium, any of them out there. Right, and, and you know, timing being everything, uh, you know, not long thereafter, Finding Nemo comes out. Obviously, you know, overstating the obvious, huge, huge success somewhere around 2004 or so, you start to get little elements, you know, quietly insert little elements from Finding Nemo into some of the exhibits, some of the small exhibits in the little modules. Uh, 
At this point now, the futuristic research facility theme just abandoned by this point. You no longer really saw divers uh, inside the tanks. The equipment inside was taken away. Uh, a few <coughs> years later, they shut down the hydrolators in 2006. And this is in preparation of the addition of the Finding Nemo ride, which is now instead of riding in your bubble or your sea cab, you're going to be riding in your clammobile um, and sort of the transformation from what it was being the living seas to the real pavilion being renamed, rethemed the seas with Nemo and friends takes place. Uh, you can see even things outside. They, they repainted it. It's now sort of a, a teal blue color in, instead of white. There's a lot of Nemo elements. Even on the exterior, there are statues. There's the mine, mine, mine seagulls, uh, fish and sea turtles now sort of replaced some of the uh, exterior wave theming. So it's a lot more about fish being friends, not food, obviously. So, um, and other changes as well. With too. the coral reef restaurant right next door, still exactly. See, I was trying not to talk about food for as long as possible. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but yeah, it's actually pretty. It's, it's so ironic that you know, on one side you're hearing fish are friends, not food, and say, oh, if you want to eat some fish who are food, come on over to the coral reef. So. <laughs> but the interesting thing too is, and this is some of the, I guess, one of the things that sort of disappointed me is that now if you don't want to ride the attraction. Um, which I which I do enjoy, and again we'll talk about this you know on, on a separate day. You can enter through the old exit area to the left hand side of the building, and you can you sort of go through uh, a very small merchandise shop into I guess sort of the remnants of Sea Base. And I kind of miss the fact that 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 the element that illusion is gone when you're inside Sea Base Alpha because you can look outside and see that that the sun is shining and it's you know 114 degrees with 95 percent humidity. <laughs> it, it takes something away from that um, from that for me. Yeah, I can remember when they were doing the construction on the Finding Nemo ride. That was actually the only way in and out of the Living Seas, as it was still known. And it does. You, you've lost that boundary with the hydrolators that, that separate you and put you really under the water. Um, and on the exterior, you know, I lost that, that gorgeous mural of the sunset on the water. That was just so beautiful. Now you have you know Bruce and Crush and you know all these stylized characters up front there, um, and you did you lost some of that element of you know your you know suspend reality. You're not in a building. You are underwater. Right. But that being said, I think that the pavilion, even with the addition of the animated characters and, and obviously the, the huge you know Nemo overlay, I still think that inside it keeps to the original theme. It really does focus on our relationship with the ocean and, and obviously all the inhabitants of it. Uh, and I think it, it keeps to, more importantly, the mission of the Seas Pavilion and then the Living Seas Pavilion and even what we have today, which is about research and inspiring people to become educated, be aware, you know, help conserve, understand what's going on with you know, some of the mammals and, and the coral reefs and, and fish while still providing us, you know, an, an entertaining as well as educational experience. Yeah, it's a, it, you still have the elements of, the, you know, what the, the past and the present and the future of, you know, the sea and our relationship with it. Um, I think if anything, you've maybe gotten kids more involved because they have Nemo. They know, they know Nemo. Like your son, they love Nemo. They want everything, to do, you know, they want Nemo, Nemo, Nemo. They get through that part, and then, you know, like we said, it's, it's everything else comes, and it's just like waves crashing over you, pardon the pun. 
but and you still have the uh, the core value, the essences of the living seas still present. Right. And, and I and I do. I think even my kids, as young as they are, take something away, take take some education away um, from the pavilion. Uh, and I think they, they have an appreciation of the ocean and fish, you know, beyond just being fish sticks. So, and, and I think, like I said, we should talk about all the elements of the new pavilion on another segment. Uh, you know, the interactive technology of Turtle Talk with Crush is amazing and exceptional. Uh, experiences like Dive Quest and Dolphins in Depth. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the Coral Reef Restaurant deserves a full review, you know, in and of <laughs> itself, not just for the few food, but, but for a view unlike you'll get um, anywhere else. Too uh, true. Yeah, and, and an experience I really do enjoy. If you're looking for a romantic restaurant, that's definitely one place to go. But honestly, Ryan, what, what I still love about this pavilion is something that I mentioned before, and I think it's something that's unlike any other in Future World, anywhere, elsewhere in Walt Disney World, really, is that the whole pavilion is alive. Um, it, it's always in motion. It's always something different. It, it's more than just a series of aquarium tanks. Even the outside, like I said, with the crashing waves, is just so kinetic. It's unlike any other pavilion's exterior um, that you'll get anywhere else. Uh, I think there is something very mysterious and very appealing and very alluring about the ocean uh, being so much of a mystery. It's as much of a mystery now as it was when the pavilion opened or, you know, you know, decades and hundreds of years ago. Um, and we spent so little time sort of investigating that that it sort of gives you um, some hope about, you know, what we may discover in the future. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe one day we will have entire bases underwater that we can understand it and, and, uh, and get some of those unique views that we, look, we thought we were getting with uh, Seabase Alpha. Yeah, you get the views of the, you know, the pitch black like you had in the seas film where you just have little beacons of light every so often giving you glimpses at what's really out there. Uh, it was so much of an unexplored, you know, it's been a, a journey of, you know, mankind since the beginning. And, you know, almost in future world, it's kind of a journey to get there. You have to go all the way, you know, in and then around and back. Uh, and it's just, you know, they say the sea calls to people and it's kind of there and you can hear the waves crashing and it's always calling to people. Right. And, and for those people that maybe don't like, um, you know, or wish that there was not the, the, the overlay of, of characters, uh, you know, remember, I, I still, like I said, I think that the seas, the seas with Nemo, whatever you want to call it, whatever you, you enjoyed more, uh, is still about exciting experiences right now. But like everything else in Epcot and, and Future World is really sort of about some of the exciting possibilities, however they may be presented to guests uh, and, and kids to make it more appealing. So um, I, I'd love to hear people's you know thoughts on the pavilion, sort of maybe its history, what they liked um, with the pavilion now, maybe some of what their memories are. By all means, please email me or call the voicemail, 888-703-2171, or go post in the forums. I also highly recommend you go and check out Ryan Wilson's blog over at MainStreetGazette.com. That's MainStGazette.com. I'll link to it in this week's show notes once again. And uh, Ryan, my friend, thanks very much for coming back and, uh, and helping me on, on the next of our Epcot retrospectives. Been my pleasure. It is time for another 
WDW Radio Show Trivia Contest, where I'm going to ask you a series of trivia questions about Walt Disney World, give you until next week to answer them, and then I'll draw a winner from all of the correct entries. Sounds simple? Well, it is. And lately, what I've been trying to do is give all of my contests a theme. And I thought that in honor of last week's 100th episode, I'm going to base my questions this week on things that have happened on the show in the past 100 weeks. Now, not that they're going to be show-specific by any means, but answers that you can find if you've been listening or if you want to even go back and find them yourself. So this week, I have three questions for you. And here you go. First question. Name two songs written by the Sherman Brothers that could be heard in Adventureland in the Magic Kingdom. Could be at an attraction, a pavilion, anywhere. Two songs written by the Sherman Brothers. Second question. Poor Roger Rabbit, who really was supposed to be a much bigger star than he ended up being, especially in Walt Disney World. In fact, his little lady friend, who isn't bad, she's just drawn that way, could at one time be seen quite prominently in Pleasure Island, if you remember on the old giant Pleasure Island sign. But before that big neon Jessica Rabbit sign was put there, Jessica Rabbit could be seen somewhere else. Where was it? Where could you find that big giant Jessica Rabbit? And I'll give you a hint. It was somewhere very close by. So the question is, tell me where in Walt Disney World you could find that giant Jessica Rabbit neon sign before it was located at the Pleasure Island sign. And third, name for me all of the seven wonders of Walt Disney World that were covered on the show. And I'll even give you a head start since I technically didn't cover the first one on the show. The first one was Spaceship Earth. So now you only have to name six, the other six, of the seven wonders of Walt Disney World. So to recap, your three questions. Two songs written by the Sherman Brothers that can or could be heard in Adventureland in the Magic Kingdom. Tell me where originally the giant Jessica Rabbit sign could be found on property. And three, name six out of the seven wonders of Walt Disney World since I already gave you Spaceship Earth. And to the victor goes the spoils. And what do you win? You can win a 2009 Walt Disney World trivia page-a-day calendar, a copy of the Main Street USA audio guide on CD, an all-new WDW radio show button, and this week, thanks to 2008 Walt Disney World Moms panel member and friend Brett Caldwell, I'm also going to throw in a snazzy pair of Dream Mickey ears. So you get the calendar, the audio guide on CD, the button, and the Mickey ears. So you have until 11.59 p.m. on Saturday, January 10th, 2009, to email your answers to me at lou at wdwradio.com. Remember, just one winner this week, but because they are going to be drawn randomly from all the correct entries, it's more important to be right than to be first. So good luck and have fun. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks also to my guest, Ryan Wilson, from the Main Street Gazette. You can visit his site at mainstgazette.com. Next week, I'm going to be back from Walt Disney World with some audio from my trip, so stay tuned. 
I'm also going to get to your emails on upcoming shows, so please keep sending in your questions to Lou at WDWRadio.com, or if you want to be heard on the air, you can call the toll-free voicemail line at 888-703-2171. That's 888-703-2171. I love it when you call in with questions, comments, feedback, even if you call right from Walt Disney World. And if you're riding the TTA, or even better yet, having a No Way Jose, even better, I said on the show last week that I have a lot of exciting things planned in the next few weeks and for 2009, including a few surprises, actually one of which I debuted just a few days ago, gave you guys a kind of sneak peek at something when I introduced WDW Radio Live, where I'm going to be broadcasting live either from my studio slash home, my house, the parks, wherever, really kind of get an opportunity for you to peek in, see me on video with audio, and you can join in the chat room where you can ask questions, talk, we'll play games, do trivia, whatever you like. I'm also going to be broadcasting live from the parks on occasion as well. Watch the site for updates as well as through my Twitter posts. That's where I'll be posting when I'm going to be doing so. You can also find these on my Facebook page. So if you aren't following me on Twitter, head over to twitter.com, sign up for a free account, follow me at twitter.com slash Mangello. We really had a lot of fun in sort of the trial run of WDW Radio Live. I will definitely be doing this much, much more in the future. And I have a lot of really fun ideas for how we can sort of use this live video chat uh, in the future in a lot of different ways. So definitely stay tuned for that and more announcements of some other things that I have planned and projects I've been working on for 2009. So uh, over at the store at DisneyWorldTrivia.com, you can still get my 2009 Walt Disney World Trivia Page Day calendar for just $5. I'm also going to keep the $5 price for the downloads for the Main Street USA and Adventureland audio guides to Walt Disney World. And if you want them on CD, those are just $8.99. Again, you can get those over at the store at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. At CelebrationsPress.com, you can subscribe to and order back issues of Celebrations Magazine. Issue 1 and Issue 2 are out. We are already working on Issue 3. If you subscribe now, your subscription will start with the third issue. But like I said, you still can get issue one and issue two, our holiday issue, over at CelebrationsPress.com. Thanks, as always, to my partners and sponsors like Mouse Fan Travel, All-Star Vacation Home, and Owner's Locker, all of whom have specials going on. Check the show notes at WDWRadio.com. And to comment on, talk about the show with other listeners, go make some new friends over at the WDW Radio Show forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. And as always, my friends, if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Go review us over on iTunes. Come say hi on Facebook and join the WDW Radio Show group over there. And of course, thank you again for taking the time and tuning in again this week. So until next time, remember, always keep moving forward. See ya. Hey Lou, it's Mike or uh, WDW Mike1988 on the forum. Uh, I just wanted to say hi from the park. I'm currently at the Magic Kingdom. It's Christmas Day, and there is a record number of people here today. According to a cast member, there are 60,000. Yes, that is right, 60,000 people here today. Just wanted to call in and let you know that Disney on Christmas Day is absolutely spectacular. Thanks a lot, Lou, and uh, can't wait to listen to the show on Sunday. Bye. Hey, Lou, it's Jay Visaki from Monroe Township. Hey, we're down in WDW and uh, just saw something pretty cool. Not sure if you've seen it or not yet or it's something new, but the first time we noticed it, 
in Pinocchio's, they actually have uh, several assistants um, queuing up people to go online to order food. So rather than self-service, people going into five separate lines, they're forming really one queue. And it was amazingly quick, and they had people guiding into your chairs. So we walked in, ordered food, and sat down. It took us no more than 10 minutes. It was fantastic. Just thought you'd like to know. Have a happy new year, and uh, we love the show. Talk to you soon, Lou. Hi, Lou. This is Wendy from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm calling from the Riverside, um, Port Orleans Riverside Resort down in Walt Disney World. It's January 6th. Uh, my family and I have been down here since Saturday, and we're having a great time. The um, crowd's pretty much left on Sunday, so uh, it's been nice and, and not too crowded. Um, we've I really enjoyed your podcast about the Riverside Resort and um, with that gentleman that has that website. Um, we've really enjoyed it down here. It's night. We have four kids, and I have, including one, in a crib. So with the alligator alligator by you, we have the crib tucked away by the sinks with the curtains that we can close. So it's kind of like he has his own room. So that's pretty nice. We don't have to tiptoe around him. Um, and also, because we have an infant, we've loved the switch rider pass at all the um, major rides at the different parks. That's uh, allowed our older kids to be able to go twice in a row on the rides, once with myself and then once with my husband, um, since you can have up to three guests per per reentry. So anyway, we've we've loved that. We've um, one of the I guess the, one of the benefits of having a toting an infant around is being able to let our kids go twice. Um, anyway, I enjoyed your podcast. It's the first and only podcast I've ever listened to in my life. My husband loaded it on my iPod and we listened to it as we drove down here from Atlanta. Um, anyway, I We'll check out your further podcast, and we are just having a great time at Walt Disney World. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou. It's Doug Harper. Hope you're doing well. I just uh, finished listening to episode 100. Wanted to say congratulations on such an amazing accomplishment and uh, many, many, many hours of shows. And also, uh, even more importantly, congratulations on reaching your $45,000 goal. Um, As we all know, the best things in life are the things that we give away and make other people's lives better. But uh, you make my life better, and I'm sure I speak for many other Disney dorks out there myself. We really appreciate the time and effort you put into these shows, and we appreciate the sacrifices uh, your family makes so you're, you can get out there and then do this for us. But uh, we appreciate all that you do, and I look forward to seeing the parks again, and uh, wings are on me next time. Take care.